KUT 90.3 FM. It's your homeboy preaching the building, and I'm on the line right now with Y Look from Northside Hip Hop. What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up, man? What's going on? What's going, man? It's going. So, um, you know, it's a pleasure to have you on the line with us right now. Uh, you know, this is the first year that CKUT is really involved with Under Pressure. And, um, you know, for the 24th year, we have you guys coming out to uh, curate some workshops on um, yeah. copyright and, uh, you know, just understanding how artists could protect their art um, in this yeah. country and around the world. So I guess, like, just give me a little background. Like, how did you get involved with uh, this movement? Like, what's your background in the music industry, I guess, in the Canadian arts? And, um, yeah, you know, let's go from there. Yeah, sure. So, um, my real name is Salman Rana, and my MC name is Why Look. I came up with a crew called The Circle, um, which is which included uh, the more popular members would be Cardinal, Fischel, Socrates, Chocolaire, Julie Black, uh, Solitaire, Tara Chase from Montreal. And, um, yeah, Tara went to uh, school with us. Big up Wager kids, you know what I'm saying? Right. Big up the original Scooby Doo, Tara yeah, Chase, yeah. lover, you know, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, so that's my homegirl. And, uh, I'm actually the one who saw her at, uh, at a show and then, and then hit up the rest of my boys. So she'll confirm that. Uh, I was just like, yo, there's this MC from Montreal and she's dope as hell. And that's how she started rolling with us. So, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of, you know, I just came up in the hip-hop community like, like anybody else. Um, and then, uh, but I was always a little, you know, I was in, I was into, you know, I was into everything about hip-hop culture. I just loved it to death. It was just what I lived. It was the culture that I lived. I was also very bookish. And, you know, I, I actually, you know, was probably the one kid out of the entire crew that enjoyed school so I had some ideas about what I wanted to do <clears throat> and you know experience um, some touring and some other interesting projects working on chocolate as ice cold and other things like that and um, but I also had interest in other in 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 philosophy I had interest in human rights and and children's rights in particular and I had a view to going to law school if I could get in and, and I made that push and I did uh came out of law school actually much to the surprise of my friends and other people in the music community here did not pursue um music law or anything entertainment uh related i i specialized in children's rights i moved to uganda i worked in the field um while the conflict was happening over there and then had some other jobs in the field abroad and then came back to do graduate studies at mcgill actually thinking I'd go back to the field, but I wrote a side paper on hip-hop culture and law, like kind of an alternative jurisprudence, how, how rules, uh, informal rules are formulated within the culture. And the dean there invited me back to pursue a PhD, which I had no intention of doing. And then, so I started that, and that was nine years ago. I'm still not done. The funding ran out, so um, I'm making a move back into practicing law. And, you know, people, friends and colleagues in the music community were like, yo, you got to come back. And, and work uh, work with us, uh, and you know, they were just of of the opinion that uh, the community and the entertainment and arts community in general needed kind of a sober mind to 
to to work in the field as well. So I'm giving that a shot, and I enjoy it because I did. I was doing a lot of uh, theory and philosophical work around copyright. My my supervisor was uh, is uh, um, kind of a renowned expert in copyright law. He's currently the current attorney general of the country, though. So I'm kind of in limbo. I'm I'm not really working on my doctorate right now, but. But um, you know, I learned a lot from him, and uh, kind of opened up my mind to to these things. And then I realized that just thinking back on my own experiences and my friends' experiences, uh, these things were kind of abstract to us, and uh, we would defer to other people's expertise. And sometimes those people never had our best interests in mind. So um, it's, it's been an interesting run to kind of step back into the community uh, wearing sort of a different hat. So that's where I'm at right now. Okay, dope. Dope. And yeah. um, so how did this transition from, I, mu- I must say, one of Canada's most pivotal rap crews, um, you know, we were fortunate to just have Motion come out to Montreal and rock with uh, my family, Call Community. And, yeah, she's, uh, my, she's, she's one of my mentors. Well, you know, I know, yeah. I know she was, yeah. I know she was definitely, uh, you know, a part of that crew that was, um, instrumental in, you know, making sure that you guys were looked out for and stuff, uh, with the circle. And, you know, as a young MC coming to Toronto and experiencing that, you know, um, meeting some of your comrades and stuff like that, it was definitely, it was a a blessing for Canada, um, to say the least. I think you guys celebrated what, 25 years last year or something Mm -hmm. like that, you know, somewhere around there, 20 years, whatever I see, you know, that big old, uh anniversary special on the junos which was amazing you know yeah. so yeah. um you know coming from that and that whole experience and as you said then going into um you know this kind of global kind of movement where you were helping children around the world and stuff like that how did it come to be um that you found yourself with northside hip hop uh i i actually you know mark Mark kind of reached out to me, Mark Campbell, Dr. Mark Campbell, DJ Grumps. Um, he, he is DTS's younger brother from uh, DTS from 89.5, uh, another one of our mentors in Home Power and, and Motion. Um, uh, he reached out to me shortly after I started the work. He had just finished his PhD. He had pursued... Um, in education, but focused on on turntablism. Like his work was also in hip hop scholarship, and from that point we kind of built. He was just a few years younger than me, but um, you know I knew of him from back in the day. But our, our paths never really crossed in that in that way. And then we kind of met through just the academic circle, and we just started building from there. I kind of found sort of a kindred spirit, somebody working on something very similar. Because my boys, I mean, the, the thing with academic work is that it can be very lonely. Like, most people, it doesn't really relate in that sense. Like, I have I have no illusions that, you know, when I finish this PhD on, on law and philosophy and hip-hop, that, you know, any of my boys are actually going to be any that interested to read it, right? It's just, it's just, a, it's just a completely different discipline. So, um, it's, uh, unless somebody's actually interested in that type of scholarship, they might read it. So, to have somebody I can build with on that, and then to also hear what he was thinking and his ideas, I and mean, he's he was really, I mean, he's light years ahead of what, what's uh, when it comes to hip hop scholarship in Canada. He's light years ahead of everybody. This the archive, uh, 
is is his brainchild. It's a brilliant historical project. Something like this is already picked up in the U.S. You have it at Harvard. Cornell has a hip hop archive <clears throat> that's established in their library, which is phenomenal, um, and has kind of an active community around it. So, you know, Rocksteady and and others will constantly come and visit and give talks and lectures, and and they're building what a lot of the architects was in the movement. Um, but nothing like that existed in Canada, and even finding a home and finding respect for it at the institutional level has been very difficult. And Mark kind of Mark kind of pushed this agenda, um, and uh, so we started building around that and some other projects, um, and then you know just kind of built our friendship around that. And he's kind of looked out for me uh, throughout this whole academic thing, and I've, I've been there to do whatever he he asked essentially, man, because I'm 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 just with a lot of gratitude. So. He's doing phenomenal work, and and uh, I think the archive. A lot of people still don't get it. I find um, there's still a lot of uh, there's there's a sense of unawareness about what an archive is and what its importance is, right? Mm -hmm. And I think and and I think it's it's uh, it's an incredibly important project because oftentimes, especially around something like art and culture, and specifically with the hip hop community, a lot of times the only people who are really remembered are those who achieve some type of commercial success. and But that's speaking to something else, right? Commercial success kind of speaks to the market, and and there's a bigger machine behind that. But as a community and as a subculture, as, as kind of an organic culture that continues to thrive and live regardless of what the market is doing, an archive is something that captures that living history, right? So, you know, if, if your kid in Montreal or Toronto or Saskatchewan and you just released two tracks, you know, white labels on vinyl 25 years ago, but you never did anything else. But your song kind of hit in the city and people remember it. It's very easy to be forgotten if you're only focusing on the market. But something like an archive captures that history. And that's, and, and you know, those two records you put out are still a part of the matrix, a part of the story of the community, what city, whatever city you came from. And nationally, if we start to think about hip-hop as a national, the culture as a as a national informal network from city to city, because I met a lot of, I met a lot of people just by virtue, like in different parts of the country, by virtue of just rolling with a circle and and going on tour. It's how we built with the Rascals. It's how we built with Checkmate and Concise. It's how we built with the Butter Babies in Montreal and other people around that time. So, um, if it wasn't for that informal networking, I probably wouldn't have never met some of these cats. Maybe I would have heard music on something, but I might never have been able to build with them. And and this archive kind of captures that history. Like, there's a lot of people that that uh, or MCs or graph artists or b-boys and b-girls and others or even writers who uh, there's you know there's the danger of forgetting them because they weren't part of that market landscape, right? So and and the archive kind of captures that memory, and they deserve to be remembered. Um, uh, as part of as part of that informal network that makes up our community in this country, so uh, I think I think Mark is just light years ahead of everybody, and his project is super important, and, and hopefully people begin to kind of grasp the importance of a project like this. Oh, that's amazing, and I mean for any artists that are listening right now that may feel that you know they have something to contribute to this archive, is there any information on how they can get in touch with Mark or yourselves to be a part of this archive? <clears throat> yeah, you can. So the let me just bring it up online so I have the exact address. Uh, if you Google Northside Hip Hop, mm -hmm. you'll you'll get the archive. The actual address is nshh 
A-R-C-H-I-V-E-N-S-H-H-Archive.ca. Um, just Google Northside Hip Hop, and it'll come up. And the idea behind it is that the contact information is all on there, but um, the, the shift with the archive is to move it uh, into kind of an open source platform that will allow people to uh, contribute. There will be like there will be levels of quality control, of course, right? Because the idea isn't that this is like a promotional tool. It's something that's seen as a historical project. Um, uh, but uh, the idea is to move it to a more open source blockchain um, uh, backend that will allow people to contribute and that will allow the community to kind of, uh, I guess, participate in the quality control and and to build it. Uh, and then that way, it's kind of decentered away from, you know, an administrative kind of board and the community kind of takes hold of it. Uh, that back end project is something Mark would have to be able Mark would, would probably be able to explain better than than me because he's dealing with the tech company that's building the blockchain uh foundation for the site to move to. But that's the idea. The idea is this, for this to become a community based archive. Dope. That's that's amazing. That is something that I could say has been lacking in this country, you know, um, I know Canada has a rich music history, urban music history. And, you know, for the last 30 years, more than yep. 30 years, we've, you know, definitely had a strong, uh, hip hop presence. Thanks to people like Michi, me and Maestro Fresh West, who are going to be bringing out this weekend to celebrate 30 years of symphony in effect during under pressures, a third annual block party. And as I said, I know you guys are going to be um, in town conversing and parlaying with some of these uh, graffiti artists, um, some of the painters that are coming out here, because what you guys do isn't just about music. It's about the totality of urban arts, right? Yeah. Um, yep. So what, it, what, what can people expect from, I don't know, like this uh, copyright, I, do we call it a conference, a seminar, a workshop? You know, what What are some of the things that you're going to be covering during this workshop? Um, so we we ran the first workshop in Hamilton, and I think we have to revise it a bit because this is it's such a technically dense subject matter that it's almost it's almost prohibit it's almost uninviting. It's it's just so I think the idea moving forward with Montreal and some of the other places where we run it at is is to just give a basic sense of the importance of understanding your work uh, as material um, intellectual property. Because I think, you know, most artists have a very ideal sense of the work that they're doing. They don't want to think about some of these other things. But if you want to also transition into being able to sustain yourself and make a living and make it your work, then you need to understand how the economy around the arts operates. And if we're looking at music in particular, um, uh, to see your musical production not only as simply a work of art, but also as intellectual property, uh, and, and moving forward also as data as everything becomes, as, as everything is essentially digitized, um, and, and giving you a sense of what that means. Uh, and how that's monetized in very general terms uh, will will give you a sense of how to move forward. Because at the end of the day, 
most of this stuff isn't something the artist has to concern themselves with. They, they just have to know what resources to use. So if you're looking for your publishing rights, you want to get paid, for example, um, uh, off of uh, your music as it streams on different platforms like YouTube or Spotify or other things like that, then understanding how that's done and how to get paid and who to go to and who to sign up with, which service to sign up with to help you with that collection are the types of things I think we'll move forward in discussing. Like, you know, in Canada, your your publishing rights organizations will be SOCAN, and in the U.S., you'll have ASCAP, BMI, and others as well. Um, and giving you a sense of the type of work that they do and then how that can generate revenue for you uh, uh, is, I think, what we'll, we'll tend to focus on. Because, I mean, what they're essentially doing is monetizing your copyright. But monetizing a cop your copyright is some, something that's very difficult to do for an individual artist because you can't, uh, you, it's impossible to have the resources to keep track of where your song is streaming and what place in the world simultaneously at any given point. Mm -hmm. These companies have the technology to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think, I think, I think, from the perspective of an individual artist or collectives, um, I think it's just important to understand that copyright is something that you want to pay attention to, um, in uh, in the sense that there are methods that you can go about in terms of. Um, uh, registering your copyright, whether officially with the government or keeping track of it yourself. And the only reason that that's important is you create a paper trail that leads to your original creation. In the, you know, in the circum, in, in, in a situation where somebody might actually try to steal your work, for example, right? You just want that evidentiary paper trail that leads back to you as the artist. And you can do that officially by registering with, with, with other, um, uh, with federally with the government, they have a they have a copyright registration, which is which is very simple. It's just a title based registration. You're not actually uploading files or anything like that. Or you can actually take steps yourself to to uh, uh, to secure your copyright in the instance that you do have to um, prove that you are the original owner. Uh, so I mean, those are, and that's there's very simple things like that. You can have witnesses. You can you can swear an affidavit. You can create a trail of original copies in your file structure. You know, um, you know the different steps of your creation, leading back to the original, to when you began, to when you ended, things like that. That could ever be used as evidence. But ultimately, the most important thing you want to understand behind the copyright, uh, apart from ownership, is just being able to monetize it and who to go to to do that. Um, and also, I mean, as an aside, weighing. The, the pros and cons and the benefits of doing that because there's a lot of literature out now that's saying for independent artists it might not be the best thing to put your music up on Spotify. It might not be the best thing to put your music up on YouTube because of the revenue stream. Uh, there's there's a lot of discussion around uh, the value in trying to popularize yourself over platforms that don't necessarily have the most equitable revenue sharing uh, frameworks and so artists that I know from from back in the day who are still doing interesting work on the underground and other things, um, uh, some of them have have decided to pull their music from platforms like Spotify uh, and YouTube. And the idea there is that if your music is so readily available, um, it might be difficult to actually sell it. And whereas if you can if if you can build a base and interest around your work even in a niche sense or like a cult following, and you use 
sites like Bandcamp, for example, that kind of control the revenue stream and share more with the artist, you might be actual, actually be able to profit slightly more than you would be able to offer revenue streams off of something like Spotify, which pays like a fraction of a cent on a stream, right? So let's, I mean, uh, let's, let's, let's be, let's, you know, face it. Um, musicians have never really traditionally been paid off of uh, music sales. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Even mechanicals, even even when you were selling CDs, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, because the mechanicals yeah. and as I was explaining to um, to Mark uh, Grumps, you know, that as an artist, the mm, I, w- I guess to say the uh, the field of copyright, of publishing, of protection has gotten so complicated in this digital age yeah. that an artist like me who. Some in my city may see me as um, a few steps ahead of the game, uh, as somebody who's monetized his music through TV and film and Cirque du Soleil and things like that. Um, I still find it confusing of, you know, because in Quebec, we have to jump through extra extra hoops with companies like uh, Sodrak, right? Who is, you know, like the French, who is like the French Soulcan and stuff like that. Yeah. Then, you know, there's the whole understanding your way around um, BDS, you know, Nielsen, you know, there's sound exchange. There are so many different, you know, there's a musiaction and all these other different companies that are coming out. Um, What I want to roll back with you right now is because you said a couple phrases and I know that I got some young artists that are listening. Hopefully I got some teenage artists that are listening right now and we're really like, you know, doing a service to them. So can you explain because you said intellectual property. So can you explain what IP or intellectual property is to the young artists that are listening right now? Okay. So so IP is is kind of a te- intellectual property is a technical term to refer to essentially a creation of the mind. It's something, you know, unlike real property like a like a house or a car or your cell phone, it's intangible. Um, uh, in theory, you can't touch it or feel it, but it's integral uh, to the artistic and entertainment business uh, globally. Um, and uh, and the the it's protected by something we've called intellectual property law, and these laws grant rights to own and exploit your intellectual property under specific uh, statutory laws uh, in this country and depending on where you're doing business globally as well and then there's international treaties which come in, come into play as well um, and these these laws apply uniformly across Canada so the Copyright Act for example there's other IP laws too um, there's the Trademarks Act and the Patents Act and the Industrial Designs Act and those deal with intellectual property as well uh, for music you're going to consider Primarily, unless you have branding and other things like that, <clears throat> which includes trade, trademark uh, laws, you're going to be thinking about copyright. And mm-hmm. copyright protects the copyright protects the creative works that are recognized and defined under the Copyright Act. And these works include literary works, dramatic works, artistic works like music, film, videos, sound recordings, and even computer programs. Um, and uh, a step down from that. Uh, if, if we're if we're talking about specifically music, um, 
there's a term there's a term music rights, which is just an industry term for copyrights vested in musical work. It's not actually a real legal term. It's just uh, it's a term to describe the copyright in musical works. Um, and these rights uh, include public performing rights. They perform what we just mentioned as mechanical rights, which are the rights to make the mechanical contrivance of the music. Mm -hmm. and this would include or a recording. Like, yeah, or a recording. And this would include things like um, uh, reproducing music on record CDs or digital downloads and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And there's like what you were also talking about with your music appearing on film and things like that, the synchronization rights. Mm -hmm. And these, these are rights achieved through the licensing of music to film, television, DVD streaming, uh, uh, I, I don't know, a sports arena, wherever your music is synchronized mm -hmm. um, uh, with moving images. And then for artists who actually write music, there's the print rights, and this would be the right to print your music. Um, this is when something becomes popular and people publish like sheet music, for example. Mm -hmm. And then, and then uh, another step from there is subsidiary rights, and these are the rights to arrange, adapt, or translate music, for example, like if somebody else wanted to use your music for other purposes and, and interpolate it. So that's traditional copyright in a sense, in a nutshell. Um, okay. Acquiring your musical copyright, just, I mean, to end that off, just to, to make it clear for, for the younger listeners, um, you know, just kind of a textbook definitional example of acquiring your copyrights. Uh, it would be, uh, there would be essentially three requirements, that the work is original and not copied from another copyrighted protected work and show some, some substantial skill, industry, or experience. Um, it's fixed in a material form, um, but the material form is essentially what's copyrighted. For example, like a back in the day, a demo tape or a demo CD or a USB now. And, uh, and for in terms of being in Canada, the creator is a Canadian citizen or a landed immigrant. Those are the necessary requirements for you to adhere copyright in. in so what would be the difference now between a copyright and a royalty. So, i.e., registering my music through SoCan, SODRAC, BMI, ASCAP, and all these other things. Yeah. Definitely, I know the difference. But for our younger, yeah. for our younger um, artists that are listening right now, that, you know, are, they just recorded their first song, and they don't want to share it because they're scared that somebody's going to rip it off. Well, yeah. when you register your music to SoCan, does that actually protect your copyright? Uh, well, does it mean your copyright's protected? No, I mean, when you register with SoCan, I mean, that's, that's one step in creating an evidentiary pathway to your music, but that doesn't necessarily mean your copyright is protected in that sense. It, it's a form of evidence to use to protect your copyright in the case that somebody does steal your music or, or, or it takes... Um, adapts it. Uh, your royalty your royalty is just a stream of revenue and royalties are incredibly complicated, even for lawyers. And there are calculations like I was looking over the ASCAP calculations the other night and they have very complicated methods to uh, to draw streaming revenue from performance rights from any innumerable number of sources wherever your music may be played uh and, and then generate revenue based off of that. So your royalty is is it's it's drawn from your copyright, but that's that's the monetization of your copyright. So that's why it's important essentially to register 
your music uh, with agencies, performing rights agencies such as SoCan. Um, but your royalty is, is a revenue stream. Your royalty is, is money. It's, it's pay. And, and that's why it's important to register because in, uh, it's very difficult for an individual artist to try to collect and remit everything that they would need to do to draw off of these royalties and make sure that they're getting paid when their music is being played. Mm-hmm. So, and these things are these things are incredibly complicated. They weigh uh, they weigh the time of airing of the performance. They look at where it's happening, when it's happening, what time it's happening, who's streaming it, where it's streaming, and from there they. They have complex calculations as to how much something will get paid, and it's not—it's not a set—it's not a set rate. And they have cycles of pay, so you have to—you have to, as an artist, understand when you're going to get paid, so you can expect it. You got to stay on top of these things yourself as well. But there's—I mean, Silkan has four cycles, I believe, um, and I can't remember the dates off the top of my head. But uh, yeah, so that's—I don't know if that answers the essential question, but okay. but your the royalty is related. The royalty is definitely related to your copyright. You can only, you know, you're gonna get paid if your if your music is legally copyrighted. But um, it's not the it's not essentially a protective thing. And that that's the royalty is your revenue stream. Okay, so now is it? Um, I guess we're getting into a little more technical stuff here. But would it be essential for young Canadian acts to then? understand their way around um, the CEPO, the uh, Canadian Intellectual Property Office, because I know it's the CEPO that would pretty much be taking care of copyrights, right? So does that apply to young artists in Canada? I think it's important to know it, and it's not hard. If you go to the CEPO website, there's, there's, uh, there's a ton of information for any artist who I think a 13-year-old could work their way through that and understand copyright essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, with CEPO, if you re- I think if you I think the uh, if you register with CEPO, then you've done yourself an advantage because <clears throat> then your copyright is I mean it's a title registration, but your copyright is uh, is is officially registered with a federal authority. Uh, and you know it'll be time stamped and everything like that, and they'll have a good record of it in case you ever have to argue it as evidence. But the C, this, the, the I, I think the CEPO, I think the CEPO is an incredibly good educational tool for people to self-teach themselves about the technicalities of something like copyright. It's, it's, I mean, even lawyers go back to it to, to just read up because it is so complex and complicated. Um, uh, it's. It's a fundamental educational tool. And that's what, I think that's what I should, I mean, maybe we should hammer that point, we should hammer this point home with, with some of the younger listeners that this isn't something, there's certain things that you obviously have to outsource. You're going to want a lawyer to look over a complicated contract that's 35 pages long to ensure that your rights are properly protected or that you're negotiating your rights out properly. If you're signing a deal with a label or a performing rights company or you're going into a, uh, a publishing deal or any type of complex relationship you might be entering into. But at a very basic level, to understand your rights as an artist is something that you can take upon yourself. You don't, need to, you don't essentially need to come to a lawyer or an expert or a professor or anything like that to learn copyright intellectual property. It is something that is, uh, that is something that you can teach yourself and the information is all there. 
Um, there's hundreds of books that have been published on it, but you could start with Siegel. Uh, you could you could start with uh, there are a number of professors online who 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 have uh, published lectures uh, on complicated matters concerning intellectual property that help break it down into kind of basic everyday terms for people to understand. So I think in that sense, it's never been a better time to be an artist because 35 years ago, it was very difficult to track this information down. You know, you, you would have to order pamphlets and other things like that and, and work your way through very complicated jargon. But I think we're moving in a direction where I think people value and understand that making these things publicly accessible in plain English for especially artists to understand is a benefit. Uh, and it it, uh, it enhances creativity in this country and produces more interesting cultural products. Okay, dope, dope, dope. So, I mean, on that note, like, I know as, I, I know Mark was saying that when you guys come in this weekend, um, you guys are going to be more so focused on the visual artists and the visual aspects. You know, we're doing the music, um, I guess this is the music workshop that we're doing right here live on CKUT 90.3. Uh, shout out Louise and Alex for definitely making this possible and happen shout out the entire staff over at under pressure sterling melissa and the whole crew for making sure that you know we can bring some valid information to these young artists out here because you know it's few and far between um definitely i'm not you know i'm not the youngest of young artists out here anymore you know uh so i remember starting in the uh, you know the late 90s early 2000s and just really like getting my feet wet and trying to yeah. figure it out. And it yeah. was, it was a complicated situation then. So I could just imagine how complex it is now. So yeah. we definitely have to tip our hat to um, people like you who are taking the time to want to educate us as a, you know, as a culture, you know, educate these kids out here to make sure that they're, um, that you know they're 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 doing their thing and they're doing it properly you know um what would you say are the i don't know top three or top five things that a young artist needs to know about protecting their art in this country well um you know things are moving you know we, we talk about the disruptive economy now with the digitization of everything it's you know real talk we're all we're all essentially educating ourselves every day because things are moving so rapidly right so um you know so, so there are some standard things that i think artists should uh should know to in order to protect themselves always is is one um just equip yourself with an understanding of the way things are moving now um and i think most of them do i think most younger artists have a better grasp of uh how to even arrange their music uh better than any of us did maybe in the past when we had to book studio time with an engineer I mean, the artists are essentially the engineers themselves now um but uh moving beyond copyright and just understanding your work as as property and i understand the, the there's a lot of problems with even thinking about it like that because you you know you can problematize private property and concepts like that and you can get into the the more complicated issues with with just participating in a market that's based on a on a very crude form of capitalism so I understand the tension in that but but if you are an artist who wants to who wants to work with their artistry 
uh, in, you know, in the here and now, you kind of have to negotiate all of that. So the first thing I would, the one thing I would say is to just um, build a good team, um, have a sound understanding of the importance of contractual relationships, because when you enter into contractual relationships, you are in your own way creating the, the rules uh, around the the partnership that you're entering into. Um, know and understand your position as an artist when you are negotiating. Uh, always be sure to not place yourself in uh, in a position where where your power as a creator is diminished. Um, because oftentimes people will float the money or they'll talk about the opportunity and they'll want to engage in a contract where your rights might be slightly diminished because you might be balancing it out with the opportunity cost. So you have to be very careful because music, for example, is something that can, uh, you know, it, it's, it can pay you in perpetuity. It can, it can be ongoing. Uh, so you want to enter into a proper contractual relationship and and understand where you're going to be, you know, five years down the road if that song, for example, takes off. Um, and take good, take 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 stock of your, your expenses. Look at think about the type of life you want to live. What is it you need? What do you need now? What will you need, you know, two, three, four years down the future? Uh, and and enter into your contractual relationships in that sense. I think contracts are fundamentally the most important thing in all of this, even beyond understanding the technicalities of copyright and royalties and things like that. Because everything you're essentially going to enter into as an artist when you go into business relationships is going to be founded and, and principled on, on contractual relationships. Mm-hmm. And most of the horror stories you hear uh, when it comes to artists losing out uh, and not exploiting their opportunities properly usually has to do with a flawed con- contractual relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not counting these in my head, but that's the, for me, you know, having a good business team and understanding your contractual um, your your contractual relationships appropriately and understanding your powers and artists within, within those negotiations would be, for me, the most fundamentally important thing. And then moving beyond that, it's, it's taking stock and understanding the technology now and understanding how it should work for you, how you want it to work for you. You know, everybody might be moving in one direction towards streaming and uh, wanting to have their music on Spotify and achieving, you know, with a view to achieving the most uh, global recognition or to try to get your music in, uh, to reach as many audiences as possible. But then there are the alternatives of understanding the value of even having a loyal following versus having, you know, mass exposure. And if you can understand the difference in that, then you might be able to make a decision to say, well, maybe I should keep my music off of this platform and maybe I should focus on something that has, uh, if you look at, that has the, the statistics to prove that they can track artists better and create a better following and uh, a better consumer base for that for that particular product or, or artistic creation. And that becomes something that's more exploitable in positive terms for that artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that's, I don't even, I wasn't even counting, but for me, essentially everything comes down to the contractual relationship. I think that's where artists have lost them historically uh, the most. And, um, uh, and, and that's very important. 
and that's reading the terms of services when you upload something. That's in personal face-to-face -face negotiations with somebody who wants to book you for a show. Everything is premised on a contractual relationship. Okay. So it's it's important for an artist to understand what they're what they're signing up for. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. I think I think that our 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 listeners have you know pretty much been stocked up with info. You know what I'm saying? I think you covered. Uh, definitely you covered a lot. You educated me as well. Um, it was, it's, uh, going to be a pleasure to have you guys in town building on this. And we don't want this to just be something that happens, uh, you know, during under pressure or now on the radio, you know, we, we're definitely, I guess, you know, as the voice of the streets of Montreal, I'm extending that open invitation to you guys to, you know, make this place a part of your home and like come out here and start educating these, um, these youngins who are coming up because uh yeah, no doubt. the you know that that mentorship and that energy is few and far between and we definitely appreciate when we see it around you know we uh we got the one and only dts in in in, in the building with us today and stuff like that and i know grumps is going to be here later on in the week um you know so we look forward to meeting you guys and you know getting to build with you guys more um how can these you know outside of going to the archive and stuff, how can young artists or budding artists, whatever, find you guys, find this information, get in touch with you, and, you know, potentially pick your brain? Uh, I have, I'm on, have one social media account, which is Instagram. Um, so you can find me on there at ylook underscore ylook, Y-L-O-O-K underscore Y-L-O-O-K. Um, I check the DMs. Um, I'm I'm principally on there because I I love all the informal archives that the draft artists have put up there um, okay. from back in the day. So that's that's why I'm on there. I have I have philosophical issues with social media, so <laughs> Instagram's the only one right now. Um, and you can contact me there, like you would be able to contact me anywhere else. Um, I do have email. People can contact me on email. Um, I sent that to you. I don't know if you want to if you want to edit that in, or I can just read it out to you now. Uh, it's s a l m a n dot a dot r a n a at gmail dot com. Nope. Um, and uh, and yeah, and that's uh, and and I'm accessible. And then the contact uh, the contact link on the archive website, mm -hmm. uh, you can hit up Mark through there. Uh, and Mark has my contact if anybody wants to hit me up through there as well. And uh, yeah, open access, man. I'm I'm always happy to discuss things with with uh, with with people from the community. I love the hip hop community. I'm committed to it. Uh, it's you know it's what I culturally identify with as growing up in in the city. And um, I'm looking forward to participating some more. And I think you have. I mean. I, I just from what I know about you. I mean, you have a lot of kids too. Sync rights is something that. I don't think most artists really have on their radar, mm -hmm. and 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 that's a very important thing. To, uh, to I think was about. lucky. I was lucky because um, Jermaine Dupri, uh, you know, basically told us that um, you know, film and TV were the new record labels. You know what I mean? Yeah, hundred percent. And getting those placements were were how we would be able to sustain our future. And yep. kind of just you know, within thirty days. I was on it, you know what I mean? Like I was making sure to, 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 to get my stuff done. Um, you know, so I do encourage young artists out here to figure out how they can find their ways around publishing, sync, yep. uh, 
all of that other stuff. And, you know, as you said, you know, for the most part, it comes down to like being another job because with the whole revolution of this, you know, digital age, you know, it's, it's hard for an artist like me to see that a movie or a television show may have been streamed like 700,000 times. And mm-hmm. you're probably making $75 for that, ep- for that show or for that episode. Um, mm-hmm. Because everything comes down to a fraction of a cent at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, really trying to wrap our minds around how this is growing into the future. And I guess that comes into my final question for you. Um, I guess I'm going to ask you to, you know, rub your crystal ball a little bit. And in your opinion, where do you see copyright or, you know, music rights going in the future? Or do you know of any changes that are coming up that may affect us that you might want to give us a heads up on? I think, uh, so with copyright in particular, I think Creative Commons and the copyleft movement are very promising. And they're premised around more cooperative communities where people where people essentially um, uh, acknowledge and openly acknowledge that their their copyright is licensable uh, and and shareable. So somebody can build off of your copyright essentially without having to worry about paying you. But but then they're re- and then they're obligated to ensure that your copyright is insured in their new production as well. So and the so I mean historically the idea behind copyright laws has been that one that yes they're there to they're there to protect the individual artists but they also stifle creativity so because people become so protective and and concerned about sharing that they forget that you know essentially everything we do is derivative we're we're building off of one another's ideas whether we know it or not and Creative Commons and and copyleft which copyleft essentially came out of the data movement out of software but people are beginning to um, apply it to other things like music and, uh, and visual arts and other things like that. But what these do is they, they say essentially the artist will create the product and will say, okay, here's my copyright. And in my copyright, I'm agreeing to, and this is all done online and you just click a bunch of boxes, but I'm agreeing that this is licensable and this, is, has, this has a copyleft copyright, which means it's licensable and shareable. People can build off of it as long as that they ensure my copyright is secure in the new creation as well. So then what you have at the end of the day are these creative products where a number of people have insured their copyright and then if an instance somebody else wants to pick that up and monetize it like a private company for a commercial everybody gets a piece um and i think that i think that's i think that's i think that's the wave of the future i think you know the idea the, the idea behind the, the disruptive movement is i think the, the idealistic idea behind it is that it's it's a it's a cooperative movement. Obviously, we know that it's essentially monetized by big corporations as well. But if copyleft and Creative Commons and other movements like this can create more creative opportunities for people to work together, and also protect their copyrights jointly uh, and cooperatively, then we're going to see more uh, more interesting forms of monetization. On the flip side, I see in terms of the in, in terms of the technology, I'm imagining that within at some point. Spotify is going to, just like Netflix turned into a production house, I'm imagining that things like Spotify and Tindall and these other places are going to turn into record labels, essentially. And what that means for the artists, I'm not, as, I'm not sure, but that might, that might, might be better for a different artist, okay. for example, if something like Spotify wants to give them a de- development deal. I'm not sure. But I, I, I have a sense that at some point, some of these big streaming uh, 
services might transition in into um, uh, similar kind of structures as Netflix and start getting involved in actually uh, uh, producing and signing and and giving deals of that sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't have any incentives to, but the only the only thing I can imagine that would push them in that direction is one the the pressure coming from the artist community, uh, the the bad press that they're getting because of the inequitable forms of revenue sharing, um, but then also the incentive they see from companies like Netflix that have that have uh, that have turned a pretty pretty profit on uh, getting involved in, in, in the production. So, and what that means for traditional uh, labels who have been kind of 10 steps behind anyways, I'm not sure. What it means for indie labels, I'm not sure. But indie labels still have a place. I think, I, I still think there's a shift. I think most of the value in indie music still rests in creating a cult following that you can... You can create revenue off of merchandise and touring, and I think that's still where a lot of uh, the promise for independent artists rests. Uh, not so much in 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 streaming, but in thinking and in, in touring. But that's just you know that's just me speculating. It's so hard to tell. Everything is moving so quickly. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Okay. Well, I thank you for your time. I do uh, think that you know our young listeners, and I mean, just the artists, plain and simple, young and old, I think they're definitely going to be able to walk away from this conversation um, a little more confident, hopefully, uh, a lot more informed, and, you know, hopefully they're able to really be able to, no, really be able to build on, um, you know, on, on their future properly, you know what I'm saying? Thanks to guys like you. So once again, uh, Northside Hip Hop will be in town this weekend alongside Under Pressure, um, you know, holding down a artistic uh, protection, I guess we could say workshop for the visual artists in town. You guys could definitely check out underpressure.ca for all the information. We've been talking to the one and only Wide Look. Live and direct from Toronto, representative of the circle, representative of Northside Hip Hop and so many different things. Man, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I really hope that we get to build on this um, more as the future progresses, you know? Yeah, thank you, brother. Likewise. I'm looking forward to coming out there. For sure, for sure, for sure. All right, man. It's your homeboy preaching the building, CKUT. We're going to take a little pause for the cause and get right back in to the music. <laughs> 